Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. It's uh, a real pleasure uh, to be here, in, not in person. Um, so Katrina Jameson was with me on uh, Tuesday night. She came into one of my symposiums, did an RNA uh, lecture on ADAR, and uh, there she is here. And uh, so... Uh, we're trading events in the same week, so it's uh, very exciting. And I should say it's an honor to have Irv Weissman there because my job in life is just to tell you that Irv is right about everything. Um, <laughs> I um, have founded five uh, biotech companies. I'm not going to be discussing their work today. So um, I've spent my uh, uh, life working on hematopoietic stem cells. Um, there's a constant influx and efflux of hematopoietic stem cells. Um, they self-renew and they differentiate, and they're facilitated by the niche. <clears throat> this includes the vascular endothelial cells and the stromal cells and other cell populations in the niche. And we've been studying this process. And I don't have to tell this audience that blood stem cells are very cool. Uh, they have a quantitative assay, a competitive transplant. There are thousands of uh, bone marrow transplants done every year. Uh, gene therapy and gene editing trials use blood stem cells. And when you have a mutation in a clone, uh, this can ultimately lead to uh, leukemia. Now, I use the zebrafish as a model system uh, to study this process. And <clears throat> I thought I would show you the birth of a blood stem cell in a zebrafish. So we're going to start off with a 36-hour embryo, and we're going to uh, dive into the dorsal aorta where all the blood stem cells are born in all vertebrates. Um, and here what we can see is that an endothelial cell, it forms a hammock, and then it rounds up to become a blood stem cell. And that stem cell then transitions into um, the circulation, and it's going to go around and around circulation and land in the next place, which is going to be hematopoietic. And in the zebrafish, this is in the tail region. And this uh, larval site is similar to the fetal liver of a human. The stem cell will transition into the niche, and some stem cells will divide. And then some of these stem cells will actually transition into the vasculature and colonize the marrow. Now, the marrow in a zebrafish is in its kidney and it makes the kidney a hematopoietic uh, organ. Some of the cells bypass the kidney and go straight to the thymus, and this starts the immune system. And all this allows this animal to have blood uh, really throughout its entire uh, lifetime. Now, several years ago, we made a fish that had green stem cells. Um, the stem cells are born in the aorta. They go round and around circulation, and they land. And if you focus on this circle where they land, you can see a stem cell transmigrates outside the blood vessels. But then um, the endothelial cells actually wrap themselves around the stem cell in a process we call endothelial cuddling. Then the stem cell will divide. There's a 90-degree turn. One stem cell leaves and the other one stays. That's a very stereotypic behavior. So we're able to take this animal and send it to correlative electron, uh, uh, um, correlative electron microscopy. And what you can see is that that stem cell that was circulating physically attaches to a stromal cell. The stromal cell orients the division of the stem cell. And this stem cell is surrounded by a pocket of endothelial cells, which we think forms this niche. 
And this pocket allows for growth factors to have high concentrations so that they would stimulate the stem cells to ultimately divide. So today what I'm going to talk about is actually clonality. And my whole talk will follow some of those talks uh, by the students that I thought were really fantastic. So um, for years, we measured clonality based on stem cell transplantation. But there's a lot of issues with transplant. Um, we know that the um, host uh, needs to be irradiated. Um, and so there's stress there. The transplanted cells outside the body are stressed. And only some clones of stem cells will actually contribute ultimately to long-term hematopoiesis. So recently, we and a bunch of other people have started to look at in vivo cellular barcoding as a technology. I think this is one of the hottest topics in all of biology. And we have two different ways of, do, of doing barcoding. One is with the zebra bowfish. So all of the um, stem cells are in different colors. And then the other is to use a DNA barcode that's CRISPR-based, and we call this Gestalt. And actually, Gestalt won the Breakthrough of the Year in Science Magazine in 2018. So we just induce the barcodes, and then we bleed the animals monthly, and then we can do a marrow analysis and an analyze clones of stem cells for their contribution to blood. In this, uh, there's no transplant, there's no stress, the stem cells are in their native niche, and this is an accurate assessment of clonality. So I'd like to go through actually uh, four stories to tell you about how we're using this barcoding strategy. So the first one has to do with clonal hematopoiesis. And I know this was introduced, so I'll do it in a very short order. But as we age, you develop mutations in enzymes like DNMT3A, TET2, and ASXL1. This leads to stem cells to become dominant. And this predisposes you to myelodysplasia or to acute leukemia. Now, it's amazing how many people have this disorder, and I call it a disorder rather than a disease because it's very common. 13% of all 70-year-olds have clonal hematopoiesis by mutations, and 30% of all 80-year-olds. And so it's very, very, very common. And uh, we know that this is an inflammatory condition, and so um, this leads to cardiovascular events, uh, strokes, and heart attacks, etc. So... We wanted to develop a barcoding system in the zebrafish, and we use these zebra bowfish. Zebra bow has um, 15 to 20 copies of plasmids, red, blue, and green, separated by LOX P sites. When you mate this fish to a blood-specific Cre-ERT2 fish, you can color all of the embryonic blood, including the stem cells, different colors. Then if we grow this up to adulthood and look in the adults, the embryonic blood has died off, so the colored stem cells will contribute to adult blood. And you can then back calculate how much blood, how many stem cells there were at the birth when it were happening in the aorta. So let me show you how this actually works. So here's an animal that has multicolored blood. I think that's really cool, by the way. And uh, what you can see here is this cell here, which is a blue-green cell, is dividing in an extravascular location. So it's very probably a stem cell. So that blue-green cell, when it divides, will make blue-green blood in adulthood. So now we take this animal and grow it up to adulthood, and then we bleed it and look at the peripheral blood smear. And uh, this is what the peripheral blood smear looks like. So uh, I'm a hematologist, and I can tell you that's the prettiest blood smear I've ever seen. 
So you can back calculate and see that there's about 20 colors um, in the adult blood. And so there's 20 colors, 20 stem cells, roughly, that were born in the aorta. And uh, so this allows us to say we have clonal barcoding. So now we wanted to apply this um, to clonal hematopoiesis. And I just wanted to review, similar to the previous talks, what's known about clonal hematopoiesis. So we know that a single stem cell is able to differentiate and make mature macrophages and neutrophils. And they look morphologically normal. But these cells are pumping out inflammatory cytokines. So this makes the entire marrow inflamed. Then by an unknown process, but I'll tell you what we think is the answer, these cells become clonally dominant over time. And this can lead to preleukemia. So what we decided to do was to use our barcoding system to model um, the clonal hematopoiesis. And we did this with a technique we call twister, which is tissue editing with inducible stem cell tagging via recombination. What we end up doing is we've injected guide RNAs that represent all of the mutations that cause clonal hematopoiesis in humans. We then inject Cas9 mRNA into the embryo, and we've titrated down the Cas9, so 50% of stem cells are wild type and 50% are mutant. So this allows a competition of stem cells to happen in vivo. We then use our rainbow technology to follow clones of cells over time. And at the end of the analysis, we can take the marrow and we can actually sort the dominant clone from the non-dominant clones because the dominant clone is one color. So we did this and you can see here in a control animal, polyclonal hematopoiesis, lots of different colors. But here's a mutant animal and you can see it has a dominant clone and in this animal, 60% of all of the blood comes from one stem cell. So we've accurately modeled the human disease using this technology. So um, we were then able to study this uh, disorder um, looking at single cell RNA-seq. And what we can see is the mutant neutrophils and the macrophages are making IL-1 and TNF-alpha shown over here. So that's very similar to what's been described in humans. But what we found was the stem cells that are mutant are actually making anti-inflammatory mod modulators. And these anti-inflammatory modulators will make this, these cells resistant to the inflammation. So these are three independent genes that we found. And we decided to study this one, NR4A1, which is a nuclear hormone receptor. And we studied this genetically in the system. So what we did was we knocked out just ASXL1. This is one of the top genes that's a, a clonal hematopoiesis gene. And this led to clonal dominance. But then we also knocked out NR4A1 in the background of knocking out ASXL1. Our hypothesis was that this would suppress clonal dominance. And that's exactly what we saw. So if you're homozygous mutant in NR4A1, your cl cluster size was lower. And so this was in all of the frame shift ASXL1 mutants. Interestingly, if you knock out NR4A1 in stem cells, there's actually no phenotype at all. 
So this actually could be a therapy for this clonal hematopoiesis if you could use inhibitors of NR4A1. So what I've shown you in this vignette is that the mutant stem cells make mutant macrophages and neutrophils that pump out IL-1 and TNF-alpha and other cytokines. This leads to an inflammatory response, and in the mutant stem cells, they upregulate NR4A1, and this leads to increased clonal fitness. And when we knock out NR4A1, we'll actually suppress the clonal dominance. And we've been recently able to find a tool compound that binds to the nuclear hormone receptor and antagonizes it. And we gave the fish for four months uh, every day the compound, and this suppresses the variant allele fractions or VAFs for ASXL1. So we'd like to take this uh, to the clinic, and we're working with Sid Jaswal, who I heard was talking, and, and others to try to move this into humans and see if we can, uh, can treat some patients. So, um, you know, I think all this had shown us that we could study clonal dynamics in the fish at a very high resolution. And one of my graduate students, Sam Watrous, had a recent paper, and uh, I'd like to tell you about that story and then tell you about a follow-up story. And uh, what we saw was uh, pretty strange. This is a picture of the caudal hematopoietic tissue, that larval niche that I told you about. And what we found was that uh, the stem cells had just been born, but 20% of all the stem cells that had just been born were completely eaten by macrophages. And uh, But more frequently, the macrophage would dock up to a stem cell and in some of these events, they'd actually remove M-cherry-positive uh, cytoplasm. And then 45 minutes later, the cell would divide. So it was almost as if the macrophage stem cell interaction was a licensing event for division. And so this was very exciting. We decided to study this in this paper. In the zebrafish, we have great ways of removing macrophages to test what the activity is. So you can inject clodronate lys liposomes that will disrupt the that will um, cause death of the macrophages, or we could use an IRF8 morpholino to genetically deplete macrophages. So um, we decided to study this in the twister system because there seemed to be a stem cell proliferative issue with this macrophage stem cell interaction. And so we knocked down IRF8 or we used clodronate, and then we studied clonality in adulthood. And we got a really interesting result that if you disrupt the macrophage uh, stem cell interactions, you get half the number of clones in adulthood. Whereas if we disrupt a gene that's involved in stem cell trafficking, we don't see any change in clonality. So there's definitely something that's very important between this macrophage stem cell interaction. So we tried to figure out the mechanism and the, the technique that was most useful was to do proteomics. And so we did proteomics. We did a special type of proteomics called few cell proteomics. We did proteomics on 120 cells. And what we did is the macrophages that had eaten the stem cells still had a little persistence of the red in them from the stem cell. And so we could sort these macrophages compared to macrophages that were generic in the embryo and look at the differences. So when we did this, we found that the macrophages that had eaten, these are green macrophages that had eaten red stem cells, had high levels of calreticulin. And uh, this is three isoforms of calreticulin. And what is calreticulin? Well, it's an ER protein 
It has a KDEL sequence, which is an ER retention signal. But in times of stress, calreticulin can transition to the cell surface and actually bind to glycoproteins. And there's also an oncogenic mutation where calreticulin causes uh, stem cell proliferation by activating the MIPL receptor, the thrombopoietin receptor. But I thought calreticulin was really interesting based on the pioneering work of Irv Weissman. And remember, I said when I gave my talk, my, my job was to say that Irv is always right. So basically, um, Irv had pioneered this on cancer cells as an eat me signal. So calreticulin will bind to a receptor on the macrophage, LRP1, and uh, this will cause the eat me uh, signal. And our macrophages uh, in the fish have very high levels of LRP1. So we went ahead uh, to look at um, uh, inactivating uh, calreticulin paralogs, uh, these three, and we could study them by live imaging to look at the macrophage stem cell interaction, but we could also grow them up to adulthood with our twister system and look at clonality. And what we saw is if we get rid of these two paralogs, CalR3A and 3B, you will lower the number of macrophage stem cell interactions. And we also saw that you get less clones of stem cells with this particular approach. Now, what these studies show is that calreticulin is required for this macrophage stem cell interaction, but it doesn't really address whether it's the calreticulin on the macrophage or the calreticulin on the stem cell. And so to understand the cell autonomy of calreticulin, um, we actually made parabiotic fish we join the circulations of two independent fish. And it's in this particular configuration that we saw less macrophage stem cell interactions. So on this fish over here, we had knocked down calreticulin in the stem cells. Over here are green macrophages that are normal. And again, in this situation, we saw less macrophage stem cell interactions, suggesting that it's the calreticulin on the stem cell that's actually being sensed by the macrophage. And this is just the data for that experiment. If you knock out calreticulin on the stem cells, you get reduced interaction, but not when you do it on the macrophage side. So then we wondered, what are the macrophages doing to help the proliferation of stem cells? Because the clones that interact with the macrophages that are not eaten, they're proliferating. And uh, we found that uh, the cells, the macrophages will make IL-1 which is a known mitogen for stem cells. And so you can see here, when we knock down IRF8 to deplete macrophages, but then add IL-1, we will rescue that effect. And we show downstream of IL-1 is MAP kinase signaling uh, by the use of MEK inhibitors. Now, the reviewers weren't exactly happy with that experiment and asked us to do an additional experiment, which I think is a terrific experiment. I'm surprised it worked, but it was very exciting. Um, so what we did is we took blue macrophages here and we knocked down IL-1. And over on this animal, we kept uh, the uh, green macrophages and, that are wild type and have the stem cells in M-cherry. By joining the animals, the stem cells and macrophages cross-fertilized uh, and we basically could evaluate what happens if you knock out IL-1 in a macrophage compared to controls. And the data was very, very, very clear that if you knock down the macrophages, uh, uh, if you knock down IL-1 in the macrophages, that you will um, not have the proliferation of uh, those stem cells in those interactions. 
So um, this was kind of the end of that uh, of that science paper where we were able to demonstrate a very specific um, interaction uh, between macrophages and stem cells that are calreticulin driven. But we kind of wondered, um, this is some type of quality assurance mechanism. The macrophages are fully removing some stem cells that that must have some toxicity in them. And uh, they're allowing the selective amplification of other stem cells that maybe have a signaling pathway that would allow this to happen. So we looked at our IRF8 morpholino um, uh, animals and sorted out the stem cells and then looked at gene expression. And what we found is these uh, depleted animals were very high in oxidative phosphorylation and FOXO signaling. And this suggested that there was a reactive oxygen species issue that's being detected. So for instance, if you have very high levels of reactive oxygen species in a stem cell, we think that that's the type of stem cell that's going to get removed and, and the, the, those stem cells will be doomed. And just to show you this, what we're able to do is stain the animals for reactive oxygen species. And what we can see is a, a stem cell here that's ROS negative versus a stem cell that actually has ROS. And when we see this ROS negative interaction, these are the ones which the stem cells are dividing. Whereas when we look at the ROS positive stem cells, these are the ones actually that selectively uh, are doomed. So um, in terms of a, a movie where I love these movies, um, what we have here is a macrophage stem cell interaction. When the stem cell is born, it goes around circulation, and now it's gonna go all the way to that caudal hematopoietic tissue. And that stem cell, um, if it's damaged, is gonna be detected differently than the stem cell that would be more or less normal. And when it comes into this niche, one of the first events that happens is it's greeted um, by a macrophage. Okay, so now this macrophage comes along, and if it's got a lot of surface calreticulin uh, because it has a lot of ROS, it's going to be completely eaten. And um, But more frequently, this happens about 20% of the stem cells, but more frequently what happens is the macrophage comes into the stem cell that might have an intermediate level of calreticulin, takes a bite of the stem cell, we call it grooming, and then it's these stem cells actually that are allowed to subsequently proliferate um, in that pocket that we showed you that's an endothelial pocket. Usually one stem cell will leave and the other one will stay. So in our model at the end of the paper, we said that um, stem cells that have high ROS are gonna be doomed and we posited that stem cells with intermediate levels of calreticulin um, uh, would end up getting groomed and the macrophage would donate some IL-1 and this would lead to the proliferation uh, of the stem cell. But we really didn't nail this particular mechanism. And there was another possibility here that actually, instead of the level of calreticulin being regulated, that there could be a don't eat me signal for stem cells. And the don't eat me signal would allow for the proliferation of those clones because they wouldn't be eaten. And so we decided to try to go after the don't eat me signal for hematopoietic stem cells. So this is the work of Cecilia Rodriguez-Pessoa. Um, and um, <clears throat> what she did is she did a chemical screen with human cells and added about 1,200 small molecules. 
and uh, stain them for uh, surface cal reticulin using an antibody. Um, she also set up a split turbo ID system that would uh, be able to fluoresce when the cal reticulum was on the surface. These gave the exact same answer. Um, and then she also stained the cells for ROS. And uh, what she was able to find is many compounds that induced ROS. And all of these compounds that induced ROS were very good at dooming, the dooming behavior in vivo. But she got a number of compounds that were not inducing ROS. And these compounds in general led to grooming. And so we thought that we had a handle on the don't eat me signal here um, by going after the mechanism by which these compounds work. And I'm going to talk about this one, DLPPMP. It's a compound that leads to more grooming, and it doesn't involve ROS. So a simple way of thinking about this is that these compounds that are ROS-independent are leading to grooming. They have more calreticulin interaction. They increase the surface calreticulin, but these give grooming over dooming. So we wanted to figure this out, and what we decided to do was to do a whole genome CRISPR-based screen in K562 cells to be able to see what the mechanisms, what are the genes that are required for surface calreticulin. And we did this in two conditions. One is we did it in the DMSO condition, just to see at baseline what was required for surface calreticulin expression. But then we actually used our compound, DLPPMP, and we uh, looked for in the don't eat me situation, what would be the compounds that are required for surface calreticulin. And one of the factors that we found that was very important was TLR3. And this is a toll receptor that's an endosomal toll receptor and binds double-stranded RNA. And I'll tell you a little bit, I'll tell you a lot more about what TLR3 does in a second, but just to show you that if you knock out TLR3 or knock down TLR3 with a morpholino, um, you reduce uh, the calreticulin on the surface. Um, an inhibitor to toll receptor does the same thing. And this affects the ratio of dooming to grooming in the presence of this small molecule that inhibits uh, TLR3. In the mouse, um, Cecilia was able to um, look at macrophage progenitor interactions. When she uh, looks at controls, she doesn't see many biting going on or the grooming behavior. But when you give poly I, poly C, which is an activator of TLR3, you get more uh, grooming events. So we started to um, try to evaluate what could be the don't eat me signal. And as many of you know, Irv has pioneered uh, with incredible work on CD47 as a don't eat me signal, which works through a receptor called SERP-alpha. Uh, a lot of it, SERP-alpha is on the red blood cells, but it's also on other cell populations. And it turns out that the zebrafish does not have CD47 and does not have SERP-alpha in the genome. So our effects can't be due to CD47 or SERP-alpha because they simply don't exist. They evolutionarily arose later on. So we then started going down the list of don't eat me signals, some of which which Irv had suggested to us. And um, one of the signals was beta-2M. And uh, beta-2M, we think, is the don't eat me signal for stem cells. So you may be familiar with beta-2 microglobulin because it is an essential component of the MHC class 1 so beta-2 microglobulin will bind to the MHC and allow the peptides to be presented to T cells uh, for the immune response. 
But a number of investigators have shown that another part of the beta-2M actually binds to these two receptors on macrophages, LIL-RB1 and LIL-RB2. And these uh, form a don't-eat-me synapse. And uh, these uh, receptors are quite important in the macrophage as they will interact with this beta-2M. So we went ahead and made a beta-2M knockout zebrafish. You can see that uh, has no beta-2M. And what we saw is that there was much less grooming and a lot more dooming. And so this is consistent with our feeling that if you get rid of the don't eat me signal, your stem cells are going to be eaten. So then we wanted to study the effect of beta-2M on clonality. And in a mosaic fashion, we used the twister system uh, to inactivate beta-2M. And what we are able to see is that the cluster size is clearly affected by the beta-2M knockout. Now, it's an interesting aspect when we went ahead and looked at these dominant clones and sequenced them, all of the dominant clones were actually wild type. So what that means is if you're a beta-2M mutant stem cell, you're going to get eaten. And so it's not going to contribute to hematopoiesis. So um, an analysis of what we've done so far is you can see here that the um, clones of stem cells normally are polyclonal. In a calreticulin mutant, you have selective uh, non-amplification of the calreticulin positive cells through this macrophage stem cell interaction. If you're a beta-2M mutant stem cell, you're going to get killed by a macrophage. And we know that this is macrophage dependent because we've done this experiment with or without clodronate. So what do we know about this pathway? Well, here's TLR3. It's an endosomal toll receptor. It binds double-stranded RNA. This then activates a transcription factor called IRF3. And we know from the work of others that IRF3 is a direct transcription factor that will activate beta-2M. So when we look at an IRF3 knockout using the twister system, we get the identical result and the IRF3 knockout uh, cells do not contribute to adult hematopoiesis. And we can affect that if you have a toll receptor mutation, again, you affect clonality uh, just the way we saw before. So this is an interferon response. And in our lab, we have a reporter fish for the interferon pathway. It's an ISG15 promoter driving GFP. So this gives us an opportunity to look at the interferon signaled positive cells. And what we can see is that um, if we sort the stem cells with beta-2M, you can see they have high levels of this ISG15. It's about 25% of all stem cells that are interferon positive. And when we look here at the ISG15 positive population that had triggered interferon, they have high levels of beta-2M. So one of the questions was, what could give you this response endogenously? And we developed a hypothesis, um, and this is uh, also true from uh, some work from my ex-postdoc Irini Trampuki, that um, retroviral elements in the genome could lead to uh, transcription, and then double-stranded RNA combined to that toll receptor from the endogenous retroviral elements. And we're able to see in the interferon-positive stem cells, they have high uh, levels of LTR4 mRNA and gypsy mRNA. And in the fish system, we even have a reporter fish for uh, LTR5, and you can see this is higher um, in this population.
and it has higher levels of beta 2M. So when you give a azacitidine, decitabine, or this particular agent that's at a DNMT3 A and B inhibitor, you will derepress the genome. And this will lead to the expression of a lot of those retroviral um, RNAs. And uh, what we can see here is um, that um, if you derepress uh, with the methylase inhibitor, you basically get more ISG15 positive cells, you get more beta-2M, and this certainly affects the grooming. So you get um, many more grooming and less uh, dooming. And we can actually overexpress um, an LTR RNA and uh, in the stem cells, and this leads to stem cell proliferation. So we think the endogenous retroviral elements are the trigger for this particular response towards uh, beta-2M. We worked with Anna Sayung's lab um, at Cornell, and she was able to look at human uh, retroviral elements. And we can see that, uh, first of all, beta-2M uh, correlates with ISG-15 levels. We also know that the level of ISG-15 correlates with the uh, amount of retroviral elements. And then when we overexpress a retroviral element in human CD34 cells, we upregulate beta-2M. So this pre, uh, is really interesting. And we've been able to look recently in mice with Charles Lin's lab. And um, we've been able to see these macrophage stem cell interactions in adulthood. And we do this using Fernando Camargo's uh, mice that are relatively stem cell specific. And we label the macrophages uh, in vivo with an antibody. And we're able to see these macrophage stem cell interactions. And we've been able to give the, the chemical that we've been using, which is a don't eat me chemical. And what you can see is that there are uh, more interactions and there are also more proliferative events as a result of giving this particular chemical. So our model is that you need a balance of calreticulin and beta-2M as the um, eat me and don't eat me signals. And if you have um, a balanced level um, with this don't eat me signal, this is going to lead to that grooming behavior and selective amplification of these particular clones. And I should say it's a little bit counterintuitively that these are the clones that will have activated their retroviral elements. These are the ones that are actually selectively amplified. Um, and then in the cases where you don't have the don't eat me signal, well, now you still get that macrophage stem cell interaction through the calreticulin, but now you are doomed as a stem cell. And this has dramatic effects on clonality. And so we're using this system now to try to look at um, how to selectively teach a macrophage to eat a mutant stem cell clone. And this might be something that could be used to treat uh, clonal disorders such as myelodysplasia or even leukemia. So I'm going to finish with another story um, on, um, on leukemia. Um, and this is a story of the leukemic niche. And this is the work of uh, Chloe Baron in the lab. And uh, this is a, um, a picture of the leukemic niche. And there's a lot of papers written about this. Um, but we have a new angle on it. So um, it took a long time to make a, a leukemia model in the zebrafish, but uh, we finally were able to do it. And it's pretty funny. The answer was just driving Mick in a blood-specific manner. And you get a tremendous increase in the progenitor numbers. Uh, the marrow fills with leukemia, very reproducible. This is an erythroleukemia. It expresses GATA1. Uh, we're able to transplant these leukemias and serially transplant them. And we're able to look at the clonality of those leukemias.
So um, those, um, in general, it's one or two clones per leukemia. So it's still an inefficient process and probably one fetal progenitor gets transformed and that leads to this particular leukemia. So as I told you, uh, we've been using this uh, new system, the Gestalt system to do uh, cellular barcoding. And uh, what you have is a barcode fish and a guide fish. And again, what we do is we label sites one through four here during embryogenesis by injecting the guides for sites one through four uh, at the one cell stage. This labels all of the embryonic tissues, different barcodes. So every single organ has different barcodes. We then at the birth of blood stem cells, heat up the fish. There's a heat shock promoter driving Cas9. And this leads to the activations of sites five through nine. And that will allow you to um, activate those sites. And so you get a barcode in each stem cell. So the first thing we did um, was to barcode the leukemia. And uh, again, we did this technique with the uh, MIC construct and we barcoded. And um, what we found was pretty simple again, that either by the color system or by Gestalt, you have one or two clones that are being the dominant clones for those leukemias. Again, consistent with one or two uh, 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 progenitors being transformed. Um, but one of the things that Chloe realized, which is pretty cool, is that um, not only could we barcode the leukemia, but we could also barcode the niche cells. And so we decided to evaluate the niche of these leukemias. And so simply put here in an unperturbed marrow, you have stromal cells and endothelial cells that are these venous sinusoids. And this supports the hematopoiesis. Well, we wondered what happens in leukemia to this particular niche. So in this experiment, um, she actually made these fish leukemic, but <clears throat> she added in the transgenes that have green blood vessels and red stromal cells. So she could fact sort these and look at the clones of these endothelial cells and stromal cells. And what she found was pretty surprising is that the, strom the endothelial cells and the stromal cells were oligoclonal. So what does this mean? Well, one way of thinking about it is that the leukemia um, is able to uh, somehow cause a change in the niche and selectively amplify certain types of stromal and endothelial clones. And that these clones probably are the cell type that most likely are going to support the growth of the leukemia. So we did single cell RNA-seq. And what we can see, uh, these are the UMAPs here, but you can see here in the healthy marrow compared to the leukemic marrow, there's been this tremendous increase in venous progenitors and venous sinusoids. And so there's been a massive change in the vasculature um, and we also see changes in the stromal populations. So uh, to summarize what we've seen is that um, certain clones of stromal cells that let's say are leptin receptor positive are selectively amplified. Other stromal cells are actually selectively decreased, these CAR cells that are alcam positive. And then we see a massive expansion of particular types of venous endothelial progenitors or, or cells. So we started to try to figure out a simple model was that the leukemia 
was making a growth factor. And the growth factor was changing the niche. And we studied a number of growth factors, and most of them did nothing. But this particular growth factor was very interesting, and it's a gene called apelin. And apelin, you can see, is very highly expressed by the leukemia. It's also expressed by the venous sinusoids themselves. And the apelin receptors are actually present on those venous sinusoids. Now, in zebrafish, apelin has been knocked out, and you have an angiogenesis defect with apelin. And Ralph Adams' lab has pioneered apelin as an endothelial growth factor, and uh, he's been able to show that ablation of apelin endothelial cells leads to a profound reduction in LSK cells and blood stem cells. And apelin-positive endothelial cells are very helpful in terms of uh, transplant efficiency and vascular regeneration. And we've actually started collaborating with Ralph because of these interests. And I think it's it's a very exciting uh, collaboration. I should say that um, in human AMLs, apelin is, uh, is relatively overexpressed compared to controls. And even if you look at myeloid versus lymphoid neoplasm in the St. Jude database, that you have more uh, myeloid neoplasms that have uh, higher levels of apelin. So uh, to understand what apelin does, uh, Chloe did a really fascinating experiment, and she just overexpressed apelin on normal stem cells and then redid all of the barcoding. And what we expected was if apelin was one of the growth factors that participated in clonal expansion, we would actually be able to see that uh, in this experiment. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw clonal dominance in the endothelial cells as well as the stromal cells. And so this really similar to what we saw in the leukemia um, are the effects of apelin. But one of the things we were pretty surprised to see is not only did apelin cause the expansion of the niche endothelial cells and stromal cells, but we started to get clonal dominance in the myeloid lineage. And so this is what we think is kind of on the way to developing a myelodysplasia. And it's clonally selecting certain clones of stem cells. And uh, this is how the niche is somehow driving this clonal selection. Now, other people have seen this kind of thing before. Um, David Scadden's lab had knocked out Dicer with an Osterixix promoter in the mesenchymal stromal cells and got an MDS-like activity. Uh, a number of investigators have knocked out APC, which is part of the WINT pathway, and gotten AML, so the niche driving the formation of AML. And Stu Orkin's lab had knocked out RB and saw MDS-like activity. So I feel that there's a number of these niche things that affect it, and appellant is one of those particular drivers. So we uh, looked in the marrow of appellant overexpressing uh, animals, and what we saw was, again, this expansion of the angiogenic endothelial cells, as well as the increase in the venous sinusoids, very similar to what we saw in the leukemia. So this would give us a model where basically um, maybe during normal health, appellant might be made by a little bit by the endothelial cells and by the stem cells. This binds the appellant receptors, maintains homeostasis. In a leukemic progenitor, you end up getting very high levels of appellant. This bathes the niche in appellant, clonally expanding these venous sinusoids, having indirect effects perhaps on the stromal cell population. And we think this drives the leukemic growth. 
And we're very excited to understand therapeutically how interrupting this particular loop might have an activity and blocking the stromal activities that support leukemia might be an interesting new therapy. So I just want to finish with that, that this is uh, my laboratory. I think I mentioned everybody by name. Um, and then I just want to finish. Uh, I'm a trumpet player. And during COVID, um, I had uh, the opportunity to, uh, I, I play trumpet and I, I wanted to play a double high C on my trumpet. So I practiced and practiced until I could play a double high C. So I'm going to play it here. I hope the sound will come out, but uh, uh, this is me playing a double high C. There you go. <laughs> so thank you very much and happy to take questions. Uh, thank you, Len. That's a, a wonderful talk, and we know you always blow your own horn um, to speak up for yourself. Um, so uh, we have time for some questions, and I'm actually going to take the prerogative to ask one because this is bothering me. You have macrophages controlling the growth of HSCs, but the macrophages come from HSCs. So how does this all start, and is there a difference between say, the primitive lineage cells and, and definitive cells, um, you know, it, it's a little bit of uh, a chicken and egg or fish and egg kind of issue. Yes. So, so thanks for that question. So during embryogenesis, um, there's primitive macrophages that are made on the yolk sac. And the macrophages that I showed in that caudal hematopoietic tissue that are interacting are primitive macrophages. And they express high levels of a gene called HMOX1, which is a marker of an oxidative macrophage. It's a subset of macrophage populations. Um, so that's true in the embryo. Um, you know, when we saw the mouse macrophage uh, that was interacting with the stem cell in adulthood, uh, we don't know if that's primitive or definitive and likely probably definitive. So I would think that this subpopulation of oxidative macrophages is what's being working. And uh, again, I, I think that uh, it might be uh, that the you know stem cell derived macrophages are actually uh, the ones that are interacting in adulthood. Okay. Yeah, I, I have a question uh, regarding the type of the macrophages, you know, there is dooming and grooming. We know that there are two types of macrophages. Uh, can we distinguish between those in terms of function or uh, is that not done? No, I, I think it goes back to the previous question. So um, we have a specific gene expression in the macrophage population that's acting. And this would be this, what's called MOX. So there's more than two populations, according to the aficionados of macrophages, maybe up to 20 different populations of macrophages. So this M1 and M2 uh, definition is kind of out of fashion in some level from what I've been told. Um, and so um, we end up with um, this MOX is probably the one that is doing uh, the, the, the behavior. Okay, thank you. Yeah. We get for Dr. Jameson. Since she hasn't seen you for Amazing. a Amazing, I haven't seen you for 24 hours, Lynn. 
<laughs> Incredible talk. Anyway, of course, my obvious question, you said IRF3 binds double-stranded RNA, and of course, ADAR senses double-stranded RNA. Have you looked for an ADAR connection there? Yeah, so we haven't in this particular story directly looked for an ADAR connection. So I, I don't really know. Um, it would be fascinating to uh, knock out ADAR in our uh, twister system, but we haven't done it. So I have no information for you, Kat, so I'm sorry about that. Great. So thanks again for the, the great talk, and, and hopefully we get you out here in person. So thank you. Thank you.